Well, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. We are glad you are here. Uh, if, if there's anything we do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, we'd love to be able to do that. Come find me. I would genuinely love to get to know you or meet you. So come say hello. Uh, I have a great beard, so you know I'm trustworthy and kind, right? So like, you're, it's totally fine, right? Uh, anyways, like, Be- like Becky mentioned, uh, our vision at River City here is that we want to be a church that's growing in the gospel, making disciples, and planning churches. And so uh, what that means is that we, we want to be a church that we ongoingly see people being saved and ongoingly transformed by the gospel, and for that to lead to the multiplication of disciples who live for Jesus and for his kingdom. And, so, and the simple truth of that is that church planting, the planting of new churches, is statistically the best way to pursue those ends. The, the statistics show that truth out over and over and over again. And so this morning, in fact, we have the chance just to celebrate a little bit together that two of the church plants that we support as a church are actually launching services this Sunday. You've heard us share with you guys uh, over and over over the past couple months about, um, about um, Eastside Church in Madison, Michael McKittrick. He came to preach uh, earlier this summer, and Ben Hacker are planting that church in Madison together this summer. Uh, they're launching this Sunday, their first services together. And then uh, our friend Tim Kimberly, who is from Collins, Iowa. Uh, That is a little tiny town, just a little bit north west of Des Moines. Tim is from there. He lived in Oklahoma City for a bunch of years, felt like God was calling him to move back to his hometown, the planet church there, because there are no churches within 50 miles that preach the gospel. And so he is excited about that. We are so excited for him to head that direction and to, uh, and to plant that church in Collins, Iowa. And so if you want to know more about those churches, um, then just sign up. You can just be on our email list. We always send out info about those churches. Whenever they send us updates, we include those in our our email announcements. And so if you want to find out more about that, let them know. Or you can fill out a connection card and just put on the bottom of that, just put um, church plants or something like that. And uh, we'll know to make sure to get you on those lists. So uh, so before we dive in this morning, I just want to begin our time in prayer, just thanking for God for what he's doing here at River City, but also the ways that he is at work in uh, Madison and in Collins. And so let's pray as we begin this morning. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are grateful for all the ways that you are at work in our lives here at River City and and in the ways that you are advancing the gospel here amongst us, but also all over our world and in our country. God, we think about uh, Eastside Church in Madison, and we think about Sacred Sacred Mission Church in Collins, Iowa. God, we are so grateful for the for the men and women you have raised up to plant those churches and to, so that people might come to know and love and follow you. And so, God, we join them this morning. We are grateful for what you are up to. We pray that you would, you would bless them. We pray that you would use them to reach their community. God, we pray as they begin new things that they would root their identity in you. God, and so that uh, no matter how well things seem to go on the outside, God, that their love for you would be sound and that their enjoyment of you would be sure and that that would overflow continually despite the circumstances and so that people might see that you are good and that you are the one that gives life. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would be gracious to save people and to transform people ongoingly by the gospel. We pray that you would do that here at River City, but also in, at Eastside Church in Madison and in, and in Sacred Mission Church in Collins. God, we are so grateful for what you have to God, as we come to study your word this morning, um, God, we just recognize as well, we need you. Just as much as we need you to plant new churches, we need you each and every month. Each and every morning, we gather to study your word. And so, God, without you being the one that empowers me to teach and preach, without you being the one by your spirit that empowers us to be able to hear and respond, God, we're just not able uh, to learn or to grow or to, or to come closer to you. And so, God, we just come dependent on you this morning. 
asking that you would be gracious to meet us in our need for you, uh, that your word would uh, be good news to our hearts this morning that changes and shapes us. And so help us, Jesus, to put ourselves under the authority of your good word, God, for our good, but ultimately for your great glory in all the world we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning, looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys together. Uh, If you have any questions before we begin, if you have any questions about the passage or about what I say this morning, feel free to come find me afterwards. I'd love to chat about with that stuff about you. I don't always have all the answers, but I'd love to help you in any ways that I'm able to. So this year, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we have got just three weeks left, and we saved some of the most juicy, most interesting stuff for the very end. We're talking about the uh, we're talking about Jesus return, the end of the world, and all the great stuff that's in the Olivet Discourse. It's just a pile of fun, right? And so uh, what you need to know if you are new joining us this morning is that the main theme of the whole book of Matthew, the big idea that's at the center of the whole book, the big E on the I chart of Matthew's gospel is that the king and his kingdom are central. You see, Jesus is the messianic king that throughout the Old Testament God had been promising would come to rule and to reign, to set all things right, to usher in God's kingly rule and his authority. And over and over and over again throughout Matthew's gospel, what Jesus has been trying to help these disciples see is that his first coming was not the consummation of that kingdom. Instead, it was the inauguration of it. You see, his coming wasn't the end of the story. It was the beginning of the end. And so in this final extended section of teaching that we see in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, this final longer section of Jesus' teaching, it's called the Olivet Discourse because he's saying these things from the Mount of Olives, Olivet Discourse. Anyways, uh, so Jesus is what he's doing. He's responding to some questions that the disciples ask about the end of the story. He's responding to some of the questions that the disciples ask about the end. See, like us, they want to know about the end. They want to know. They're thinking, if this isn't the end of the story, then what is the end? They're thinking, we want to know what's next, and what can we expect, and when can we expect it, and how will we know when the end is near, and how can we get ready? And what we saw last week in chapter 24 is that while Jesus doesn't tell us everything we want to know about the end of the story, what we see is that Jesus does tell us everything we need to know. He tells us everything we need to know in order to, be wait well to, in order to wait well for his kingly return, to be prepared for his kingly return. And You see, what Jesus wanted for these first disciples and for us as we f- set our eyes on the end of the story is for our eyes to be fixed on him, the author of the story, the king of the kingdom, the one who that we can trust implicitly and hope in confidently. You see, what Jesus wanted these disciples to know, we saw last week, is that although the end might be uncertain and unclear to them, it was crystal clear to him that although things weren't going to go the way that they expected or the way that they wanted, they could still trust that he was in absolute control, that nothing was outside of his will, that he indeed was in charge and in control of all, that, that although he had come the first time in humility as the suffering servant who would lay down his life for his people, one day indeed he would come again. But this time it would be in power as the just judge of all people and the king of glory who would reign victoriously and rule forever. You see, what we saw last week as we studied the beginning of the Olivet Discourse is that, the, is that when we set our hope and our trust on Jesus and his word, then we'll have everything we need in order to be ready for his kingly return. You see, in this week, 
Jesus continues his, his, uh, his, his words about the, his, his impending return. And, and this week, as we continue our study, what we're going to see is that Jesus' emphasis, the, the emphasis of his words in the second half of the Olivet Discourse here, the emphasis of his words are on the imminence of his return. They're on the unknown day of his great kingly return and how that informs and transforms his followers, our lives, every day as we wait for his return. So in our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus tells four different parables. And in various ways, they all describe what should characterize the attitudes and the actions of those who are waiting, keeping watch for his return, no matter when it comes, whether it be expedient or whether it be delayed. And so as we study, what I want you to see is that it is a committed watchfulness that characterizes the lives of those who live in light of Jesus' imminent return. It is a committed watchfulness that characterizes the lives of those who are waiting for Jesus' imminent return. It's a vigilant, persistent expectancy of the king's return that shapes our lives every day until he comes. And so with that in mind, let's uh, read God's word together, our passage, and we'll continue our study. We're in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Again, Jesus speaking here about his return. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the, son, at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore... Keep watch, because you do not know uh, on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of a house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. And so you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. For who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? For it will be good for that servant who, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. For truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that the servant is wicked, and he says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants, saying to eat and drink with drunkards. You see, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour that he is not aware of, and he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps, and the, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all became drowsy and fell asleep, and at midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil, buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in t uh, with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, 
it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags gained gold, uh, two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the charge of... Uh, then. And then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you lazy and wicked servant. So he went, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, it would have received back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and thrown and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the word of the Lord. You see, it's a long passage this morning, and there's a lot going on, but there's three things I want to highlight to us this morning as we study God's word together. Three things Jesus says about in that, how, that change our lives and how we live in light of his imminent return. First, he begins with a call to watchfulness. He describes watchfulness, and then he, and then he tells us about the cost of negligence. So begin this morning with a call to watchfulness. See, the passage begins with Jesus highlighting the unknown yet imminent day of his return. Verse 36 and th- through 39 says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, just a brief side note here before we move on. Some people have a really big problem with Jesus saying that. And Jesus says, I don't know when I'm coming back. And people are like, whoa, like, does that mean Jesus isn't God then? Like, what is happening? If he doesn't know everything, then he clearly can't be God. And just... That's not a problem, okay? Uh, and here's why. You see, the Bible teaches and the Council of Chalcedon, uh, one of the early Christian councils, affirm that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. A fancy theological word, if you need this for a uh, quiz sometimes, called the hypostatic union, right? So you can file that away into your fancy theological library, right? Um, pull that out when you need to impress somebody or something. I don't know, right? But... What that means is that during Jesus' time on earth, what Jesus chose to do willingly was to submit himself fully to the Father. John chapter 5, verse 19 says it this way. Jesus says about himself, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. You see, and what happens, what what the Bible teaches about the way that Jesus uh, lived is that Jesus gave up the independent use of his divine attributes, and instead he only accessed them at the will of the Father. 
See, Jesus didn't become not God. He didn't, he didn't cease to have uh, unlimited knowledge. He didn't cease to have unlimited power. But in becoming fully man, what Jesus chose to do was to submit the access of his divine attributes to the will of the Father. And see, and that's what Jesus is saying when he says, I can do nothing except what the Father tells me. See, Jesus had fully and wholly, com- completely put himself under the authority of the Father. And see, and that truth shouldn't, shouldn't scare you. That, should, that shouldn't cause you to doubt. Instead, that should, should encourage you. It should challenge you as you think about what it means to be those who follow King Jesus and are surrendered to him. Instead here, the big idea that Jesus is getting at is that nobody knows when he is coming back. There is no day marked on the biblical calendar. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week, next year, 10 years, 100 years. Nobody knows. In fact, Jesus specifically says that no one except the Father knows. Not even the angels know the timing of his return. And so if anybody ever tells you that they know or that they had a vision from an angel that they know when Jesus is coming back or they publish a book like 19 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 2019, you can just straight up disregard them. I mean, ask them what they're doing with their retirement accounts because they won't be needing them and maybe they'll hand them to you, right? But, but beyond that, you can just go straight up and disregard it, Okay. You see, the only answer that we have to the question of when is soon. 1 Peter chapter 4 reminds us that the end of all things, he just says, is near. You see, the thing that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament emphasizes isn't the date of his return. Instead, it is the imminence of his return. Isaiah and 1 Thessalonians, they, they describe Jesus' return as, the, as coming with the suddenness of labor pains. Hebrews chapter 1 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. You see, Jesus' first coming ushered in the last days. His first coming and his death and his resurrection, that was the beginning of the end of the story. You see, there is only one event left in the timeline of God's story, and that is the consummation of his kingdom. You see, it is near, it is coming, you just don't know when. You see, that's what it means for something to be imminent. And so just like the onset of labor pains tell a mother of the imminent yet imprecise timing of her child's birth, Jesus' words here tell us of the imminent yet imprecise timing of his second coming. You see, and for moms and Christians alike, that can be frustrating. Right? That can be a little scary. It can be a little hard. You see, but Jesus' words here are meant to encourage. They're not meant to bring about fear. They're meant to encourage. You see, furthermore, like the sudden coming of Noah's flood caught people off guard and unprepared, Jesus says, so too will his return. I don't know if you notice this as we read over and over and over and over again throughout the passage, the word, he will come at an hour you do not expect. That gets repeated over and over again. You see the unexpected nature of Jesus' return. Unexpected timing, rather, of his return. You see, and that imminence of Jesus' return is not meant to scare you. It's not meant to, like, create some kind of fear or worry in you. It's not meant to make you start, like, hyperventilating and second-guessing everything about your life. Instead, it's meant to motivate you. It's meant to, it's meant to change us and to shape our lives as we wait in eager expectation of his return. You see, just like the knowledge of the imminent flood shaped Noah's life, right? He spent years building the ark God told him to build because he knew the flood was coming. So too, the knowledge of Jesus' imminent kingly return, it should shape our lives. It should change our lives if we actually believe that the king of the kingdom is imminently coming back. It's kind of like when you have your first kid, 
right? You get, you get ready. Before Emma was born, I remember we took classes to figure out what we needed to expect and what to do when certain things happen. We, we made up her room. We, we bought an obscene amount of baby toys and clothes. And we just, like, there's just some, the amount of things that we accumulated was just, like, incredible. I can't even, I can't even, like, imagine what it was. I remember it was, like, six months before her due date. Hannah had the go bag packed. Did I remember where that go bag was the night of? No, right? But it was packed, and it was ready, right? So we were preparing for it. You see, the birth of a baby is a momentous, life-changing event. But like we saw last week, there will be no more momentous event. There will be no more life-altering event, no more life-changing moment in history when the king of kings comes riding on the clouds, coming to rule and to reign in glory and in person. There will be no more significant moment than that. You see, and it's in light of the momentousness and of the imminence of Jesus' kingly return that he calls his disciples to live lives that are characterized by a vigilant watchfulness. Verse 42, he says, Therefore, because you do not know when I am coming, but I am absolutely coming back, therefore, keep watch. Literally, the word translated there is keep watch. It means to be on alert in a constant state of readiness. So the question for us this morning then is, what does it mean to keep watch? Right? If Jesus tells us to keep watch, the question is, what does it mean for us to keep watch? Does it, what does it mean to be on alert in a constant state of readiness? And so that brings us to the second thing we see in our passage this morning. Jesus gives us a description of watchfulness. And the way that Jesus describes what watchfulness looks like, what it means to keep watch, is he tells four stories, four parables that are all, in all various ways, they, they help to give us a picture of what it looks like to live lives that are characterized by keeping watch. And so let's take a look at, at, at each of these ones. In verse 43 through 44, the parable of the homeowner and the thief, we see that keeping watch looks like a mindful anticipation instead of a careless procrastination. Keeping watch looks like a mindful anticipation instead of a careless procrastination. So in this short parable, Jesus compares himself to a burglar, not in the fact that he's coming to try to steal your stuff, right? but in the suddenness of his coming, right? in the unexpected surprise factor of his return. So just as wise homeowners never leave their house unprotected, Jesus' followers should never stop being ready for his return. It is a perpetual, mindful anticipation of his return, not just a careless procrastination. Ah, we'll get around to it when we're ready. You see, you Lock the doors when you leave the house because you know that burglary exists. And so you don't want to get robbed, right? You see, after you've been robbed, it is too late to lock your doors, right? I mean, it's just a little weird if you try to lock somebody in your house. It's a whole different thing, right? But it's not effective, okay? It's too late at that point. Maybe a better example, right? You don't wait until your identity gets stolen uh, in, and because all your accounts have the same password, which is some clever name of your dog plus some number or something like that, right? No, you get a password manager and you use it, right? Because you know that the world is filled actively with people who are trying to steal your information, right? You see, because it is too late to make unique and secure passwords after your accounts have already been hacked, right? It's too late. This is your friendly reminder. This is not a spiritual thing. You should get a password manager, Like right? You really need one. Uh, not a spiritual thing. That's just your friend. I'm saying that to you, okay? Right? <laughs> 
But likewise, right, Jesus' followers should be characterized by a mindful anticipation of his return because you know the king is coming back, but just not when. You see, our lives must be characterized by a mindful readiness instead of a careless procrastination. What I hear so often is people who just say, you know what, Jesus is good. I, I believe him. I believe what he says, but I am just not ready to surrender to him. See, I like my life. I like my freedom. I like living the way that I want to live. I just want to have a little fun before I settle down. I just want to live a little before I surrender to him. You see, that is not the attitude of someone who is keeping watch. You see, careless procrastination assumes that there is plenty of time until Jesus returns to get right with him. Or it assumes that when he returns, it will be like you'll just kind of get a gimme, right? That'll just be a little do-over, that you'll be able to apologize, and then everything will get right. You see, I need you to hear this. The truth is that this passage, nor any other passage in all of the Bible, gives any hint that there will be a second chance to repent and put your faith in Jesus after he returns. There are no second chances. You see, and if you have not mindfully anticipated his return, if you have not trusted him as your savior and surrendered to him as your Lord, when he returns, it will be too late. I need you to hear that this morning. I'm not saying that to judge you. I am not saying that to scare you. I am saying that because the king of the kingdom, the ruler of all things, is coming again to rule and reign. And if you are not ready when he comes back, it will be too late. You see, but Jesus goes on. In verse 45 through 51, we read the parable of the faithful and the wicked servants. And what we see is that, that keeping watch doesn't just look like a, a mindful anticipation. Keeping watch looks like a faithful obedience instead of a selfish indulgence. Keeping watch for his return looks like faithful obedience, not selfish indulgence. See, I don't know about you, I love the Marvel movies. I think they're just great. They're just thoroughly entertaining. One of my favorite newer ones is Thor Ragnarok. Side note, we can just all agree Taika Waititi kind of saved that series, right? Like, Thor is amazing now, right? It's just like, that was total, like, it's just so much better. Okay. Anyways, there is a scene near the beginning of that movie where Thor suspects that his evil brother Loki uh, is not dead, as he had first thought, right? But instead, he is impersonating his father as the king of Asgard. And so Thor returns from conquering this big giant demon thing, whatever it is, right, to find this huge statue of Loki at the center of the whole city of Asgard, right? And, and not just that, but Loki himself, who's disguised as his, as his father, the king of Asgard, he's lounging around on this couch with everybody doing his business, kind of like eating grapes like in, you know, in hindsight, and watching a play that he made up that like kind of glorifies him as this like amazing, sacrificial, brave leader, right? And so at the end, the play is ending, and Lotus, Loki out of the corner of the eye notices like Thor is just showing up, and he's just like, oh, okay, okay, all right, we're gonna, we gotta get everything ready, right? You see, in some ways, that, that story, that, that picture, that scene, it reminds me of this, of this scene here in the passage, right? You see, there's a master who has put a servant in charge of his household while he goes away, and he returns to find two very different behaviors, You see, in the first case, he returns and he finds a faithful servant who has used his position of authority to care for others well. He finds a servant who who has used his position of authority, who has honored his master, who has done what he asked him to do. You see, but in the other case, he finds a wicked servant 
who is mistreating those under him and using his position of authority for his own selfish indulgence, just like Loki was, right? See, both of these servants, they are unaware of when their master is coming back, but only one of them was keeping watch. You see, only one of the servants' lives was characterized by a faithful obedience to the master and to his will. One commentator writes it this way. He says, the difference between the two servants is in how the master finds them behaving. Our readiness for the coming of Jesus is not marked by an excited speculation, but by faithful obedience until he comes. Not by excited speculation, but by faithful obedience until he comes. David Platt, he sums it up this way. How would you live differently today if you knew that Jesus was coming back tonight? Would you be found walking in obedience to him or wandering in disobedience from him? Would you be found walking? Would you be found loving your neighbor or ignoring your neighbor? Would you be found passionately devoted to your spouse or practically negligent of your spouse? Would you be found hating sin or holding on to it? You see, keeping watch for Jesus' return looks like living lives that are characterized by faithful obedience. Not selfish indulgence in light of the king's imminent return. You see, we know that the king is a good king of all. And that he is returning. And so we live lives characterized by faithful obedience to him. We see in verse 20, uh, chapter 25, verse 1 through 13, Jesus tells another parable. It's the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, sometimes that language can be a little confusing. Just think bridesmaids, right? There's a wedding party, ten bridesmaids. That's what's going on here. And what we see is that, we see is that keeping watch looks like calculated preparation, not just foolish enthusiasm. Keeping watch looks like a calculated preparation, not just a foolish enthusiasm. See, this parable is set in the context of a Jewish wedding. So where the father of the groom, he would negotiate the, the price of the bride's dowry at the bride's parents' home, and then the couple would proceed through the streets accompanied by the wedding party uh, over to the groom's parents' home where the festivities would be completed, and, and oil-lit lamps would, would light the way of this procession. And so because who knows how long that process could take, right? Some fathers are a little more hard-headed than others, right? Who knows how long that process could take? It may be a while before the bridegroom emerges from the bride's home and the bridal party would need to be prepared with an, with an extra supply of oil to make sure that they had enough. Kind of like a parent in that time between the wedding ceremony and the wedding uh, reception needs an adequate supply of snacks and of batteries that are empowering whatever device is displaying the Daniel Tiger episodes, right? Because, like, let's just be honest. You do not want to find out what happens if you run out of snacks or Daniel Tiger in the unending amount of time between a wedding reception and the service itself, right? You never know how long that thing is going to be. I mean, Jesus could come back in the middle of it, it feels like sometimes, right? <laughs> and you need to be ready for that, right? But in all seriousness, this morning... You see, this parable, it is incredibly poignant. You see, I just want to highlight two things I think Jesus is emphasizing here. The first is that keeping watch is characterized by first counting the cost of following him and persevering until the end. Luke 14, 28, Jesus says this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? You see, it is not an enthusiastic beginning of your faith journey that matters most. It is your steadfast perseverance until the end. You see, I can't help here but think about the rocky soil Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 13. Right? People whose faith sprouts up quickly but dies out just as fast. 
You see, because they had no roots. You see, these five foolish bridesmaids, they had a foolish enthusiasm, but had not counted the cost. They were not ready when the groom had returned. One pastor says it this way, the king of heaven is not for, kingdom of heaven is not for those who simply respond to an invitation. All of those bridesmaids had done that. Or for those who simply make a confession, each of the bridesmaids would have said that they were part of the bridal party. Or even those who simply express some affection. It is not that they were indifferent to the bridegroom, This was a happy occasion. They were glad to be a part of it, but they weren't prepared to persevere. You see, instead, the kingdom of heaven is only for those who endure in salvation. You see what this pastor is saying? He's saying there are going to be people who look for a time like they are Jesus' followers. People who have responded to an invitation. People who have made a confession. People who have expressed some affection towards Jesus but who will not endure to the end. My Facebook feed is littered, is littered with stories, especially recently, of even well-known Christians who are abandoning their faith entirely. You see, our passage last week, Jesus said, you can expect that to happen. You see, the kingdom of heaven instead is for those who are characterized by a calculated preparation, who have counted the cost. They have said, Jesus, you can have everything. I'm writing you a blank check with my life. There is nothing which you can ask for which I will not give you. You see, the point is this. Don't put your ultimate hope in some exciting moment in which you prayed a prayer or stood up at some conference or signed a card. Those things are all well and good. I'm not trying to discount them. But those who are keeping watch for Jesus' imminent return, those who are ready for the king's return, are those who are characterized by an ongoing perseverance in faith. Is that true of you this morning? I say that again, not to scare you, not to cause you to doubt or to have fear, but to ask, to encourage you to ask the question, is my hope in some moment or is my hope revealed by a life that is characterized by a perseverance in faith? Secondly, and this is equally as important this morning, you see, keeping watch is characterized by the realization that there are some things you cannot borrow. Keeping watch is characterized by the reality that there are some things you cannot borrow. There are some things you must possess for yourself. You see, the foolish bridesmaids could not borrow the oil of the wise ones. You see, it is not the faith of your parents that saves you. It is not the quality of the church you attend that makes you ready for Jesus' return. You see, if you see, it is your own heart and your own life that are surrendered to him as Savior and Lord that make you ready for his kingly return. You see, there are no marriage visas in Jesus' kingdom. There are no family visas. There are no child visas. There are no spouse visas in Jesus' kingdom. You stand on your own before him. And either you have put your faith in him to be your Savior and your forgiver and your leader, or the truth is you have not. You see, it is something you must do for yourself. No one can do it for you. And I would urge you this morning, if you feel like you're relying on the good deeds of someone else, the hope of someone else, the faith of someone else, Jesus' words this morning, my prayer is that they might wake you up. So keeping watch. It looks like a mindful anticipation instead of careless procrastination. It looks like faithful obedience, not selfish indulgence. It looks like a calculated preparation, not a foolish enthusiasm. And lastly, in chapter 25, verse 14 through 30, the parable of the bags of gold, we see that keeping watch looks like, it looks like diligent stewardship instead of lazy custodianship. 
Keeping watch looks like diligent stewardship instead of lazy custodianship. You see, like the parable of the wise and wicked servants, this one describes a master who's leaving his servants with responsibilities fulfilled. In this case, in case it's the stewardship of various sums of money. All of them are large. A bag of gold, the, the, the literal word, is a talent of gold, it's like, think, years of wages, right? A lot of money, a lot of money. And the emphasis is on what the servants have been doing while the master has been away for a long time. You see, the first two servants, they have diligently stewarded their money, the, master that, the, the, the money that their master put them in charge of, multiplying it greatly, and they enjoy his pleasure. And in contrast, the third servant just buries his. He dug it up, dusted it off, gives it back to the master. Here's what's yours. Notice in this passage, you see this third servant is condemned, not for what he did, but for what he did not to do. One commentator writes it this way, the fault of the third servant was that he did not recognize his master's intention and opted for safety instead of service. Hoping to avoid doing anything wrong, he finished up by not doing anything right. You see, and if we mistakenly view God as a hard taskmaster, it will be hard for us to respond to him in a loving and open way. You see, here's the point. Jesus is a good and generous master who has entrusted to his people gifts that they might steward, that are given to them for his glory. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, what has King Jesus given you to steward? I think most helpfully, it's helpful to think about that just like as you think about your time, your talent, and your treasures. You see, how do you use the time that Jesus has given you? What do you make time for? What do you sacrifice sleep for? You see, is it for you, for your good, for your pleasure, for your interest, or for, is it for his kingdom and his purposes? Man, that stung my heart this week. It's hard to say some of the things I say up here because they speak to me. As I wrote and as I studied this week, I felt the Spirit graciously. Far too often. What I realize is that the way I spend my time, it reveals that I'm consumed with me with my kingdom, with my purposes, with my pleasure, with my good, not the king and his kingdom. I felt graciously God reminding me, this week calling me, inviting me. None of that stuff will last. The one thing that lasts is him and his kingdom, his purposes. just felt like God was graciously reminding me to give myself to that, to his name, his glory, his people, his purposes. How are you spending your time this week? Does it reveal that you are watching for his return or that you are waiting for your own? How do you spend your time how to use the talents and the gifts that Jesus has given you? How has Jesus wired you? What would it look like for you to use your gifts and your talents for his glory and his kingdom instead of your own benefit or the increase of your own career or the promotion of your own recognition? What would it look like for you to give yourself all that you are and all that you have over to him? 
Lastly, how, how do you use the money that Jesus has given you? Are you storing up treasure here on earth or are you investing in eternal things? See, my mother-in-law, one of the most generous people I have ever met, she always says this. She says, my retirement funds always go up and down, but the money I put towards spiritual investments has never lost a cent. See, many of you are young here this morning. Maybe you have student loans, maybe you have debts, maybe you have lots of other things you'd love to save for, things that you'd love to prepare for, hopes and dreams you have. I just want to encourage you, do not wait to give until you have all of your financial ducks in a row. Do not wait to give until you have your student loans paid off or your mortgage paid off or you feel like you have enough in your savings account. You see, I want to encourage you to give urgently to give sacrificially, to give generously, to give consistently to Jesus' kingdom and its advancing. If you feel like I am trying to manipulate you to give to this church, then by all means, give somewhere else. But, but do not lie to yourself that you think the king is imminently returning if your money reveals that you don't care about his kingdom. You see, the king's return is imminent. And what you do with your money, it reveals whether what you are worshiping. It reveals what you are waiting for. It reveals what you are watching for. So does your money reveal that you are waiting for the king and his kingdom? That you think his return is imminent, that it could come at any point? That does not mean to be foolish with your money. That does not mean that you should not save for retirement. It doesn't mean that you should just like spend everything you have because who knows if Jesus is coming back. But what it does mean is that your life is characterized by the king and his kingdom purposes. Let that be the thing that shapes what you do with your money. Lastly, what do you, how do you use the greatest gift that Jesus has given you, the good news of the gospel itself? You see, if there is one greatest treasure that Jesus has given us and he has entrusted to us, it is the message of the gospel. You see, and the message of the gospel is not to store it away, to put it in the ground, hoping that you will not lose the treasure that you found. No, the message over and over and over throughout Scripture is that you would give it away freely so that all might have it. You see, you talk about what you love, and you come to love the things you talk about. You see, one of the best ways to grow in your love for Jesus and your faithfulness to him is to share him with others. That is simply one of the best possible ways you can grow in your love for him and your faithfulness to him is by proclaiming his goodness to others. See, and here is the beauty of this parable. Each servant is assigned a different amount according to their ability, and the praise the two diligent stewards receive is the same, even though what they bring is different. You see, the praise those two diligent servants receive, it is the same praise. One of them brings more than twice as much back. You see, the late Warren Wearsby sums it up this way. He said, we have been assigned our ministries according to the abilities and the gifts that God has given us. It is therefore our privilege. It is therefore our privilege to serve the Lord and to multiply his goods. It's our privilege then to serve him and to multiply whatever it is he has given you for his kingdom. You see, the diligent stewardship is not motivated by a desire to impress or a longing for a, approval or a goal of praise. It is driven by a passion to please. 
You see, verse 23 says this, come and share the master's happiness. Ephesians 5 tells us, find out what pleases the Lord and do it. You see, when you get the gospel, when you get the gospel, when the truth about who Jesus is and all he has done for you, when that clicks in your heart, what you realize is that you are altogether wildly unimpressive. You are altogether wildly unimpressive, but that Jesus loved you anyways. Oh, that fuels a longing to please him because what you, re- you realize is that what you have received, you did not deserve. What you have been given, you could not have earned. What you have been entrusted with is something more valuable than you could ever pay back. You see, so enjoy. You give yourself to the master wholeheartedly who has loved you before you did anything for him. You see, the gospel motivates us to please the one who has loved us when before we even loved him back. It's not about approval. It's not about duty. It's not about obligation. It's about longing to love the one who has loved you already. You see, and so in these four parables, Jesus describes what it means for us to be watchful for his return. And I will sum it up this way. To keep watch is about being mindfully, faithfully, thoughtfully, and diligently consumed with living for the glory of the king who is imminently coming to reign and rule. You see, but these parables, they don't just explain to the disciples what it looks like to keep watch. They reveal the cost of not keeping watch. They reveal the price of not being ready for his return. You see, when the king returns and finds many unprepared, the sobering truth is that it will be too late. You see, there is no recourse for the burgled homeowner. All is lost. There are no second chances for the unfaithful servant or the lazy steward. Their punishment is immediate and final. There is no court of appeals. There is no side door or back door for the foolish bridesmaids. The party is closed. They are not on the guest list. I said this before. I need you to hear this. You see, the Bible gives no hint whatsoever that there will be a second chance to put your faith in Jesus and repent after he returns. You see, love does not win. God does not just forgive everybody out of the goodness of his heart. You see, he is a king who is not just good. He is a king who is just. And either on that day, King Jesus will have paid the penalty for your sin, and you will have life and freedom in him, or you on that day will begin to pay the penalty for in eternity for your own sin. You see, Jesus is the king who is coming back, and there are no second chances after he returns. I need you to hear this. I do not say that to judge you. I do not say that to scare you. I say that to plead with you. Be ready for his return. Be ready for his return. Because if you are not ready, then it will be too late. And the judgment that Jesus will give is sobering. The wicked servant is cut into pieces and assigned a place with the hypocrites. The five foolish bridesmaids are shut out of the wedding party for good. The lazy steward has all that he has taken from him and thrown into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is speaking clearly and emphatically here about hell. 
You see, which is a place that does exist and is not merely a threat, but is the promised destination of all those who have not surrendered to King Jesus and have put their lives under his authority. That should hit you like a freight train this morning. You see, the judgment of all these people is that their lack of readiness revealed a lack of relationship with the master or the bridegroom. Their lack of readiness, it revealed a lack of relationship. It's not that they lost their salvation, that they trusted in Jesus and then they forgot about him. It's that their actions revealed they never had it in the first place. And so they are forever shut out of the kingdom and relationship with the king. So the question this morning, how are we to respond to Jesus' words? I know we are going long. It is worth it with me. Hang in there. See, if you are here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I need you to know my tears are not an attempt to manipulate you. They are not an attempt to get some emotional reaction from you. They're in love for you. See, if you are here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, meaning that you have not trusted Jesus to be your Savior and forgiver, you have not surrendered to him your life as your Lord and your King, then Jesus' words this this morning are meant to call you to that. They're meant to call you to a faith and a surrender to him, to faith in him, to a humble repentance, to a vigilant watchfulness for his return. For those of you who are here this morning and you are Christians, Some of you need me me to remind you that the goal of Jesus' words is not to scare his disciples into a paranoid frenzy, into a paranoid second-guessing of their status with him, into a a frenzied list-checking and am I ready and have I gotten ready. That is not the point. Instead, it was to call them to confidently and wholly and persistently to give themselves to the king and to his kingdom, trusting that his glorious return could come at any moment. See, one commentator wrote it this way, Christians are to watch, not like astronomers through a telescope or guards watching a TV screen, but like lovers who cannot wait for another glimpse of their beloved. See, that's what I want to call you to this morning. Not to fear, not to guilt, not to shame, but to a wholehearted, all-consuming love for Jesus and for the increase of his name and of his glory and of his kingdom and of his purposes and a longing for his return. Why? Because Jesus is the great king of all who came first in humility and love to save you so that you might eagerly long for his return, long for the day he would return to rule you in joy. And see, the king is coming back And his return is joyous good news that is to be longed for and hoped for and vigilantly lived for. And see, every week when we take communion, that's what we're 
That's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're doing together each week. You see, we're remembering all that Jesus did for us. His body and blood shed for us so that we might be cleansed and made new, ready for his kingly return. You see, communion does not make you right with God. It does not save you. In, in fact, instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, to, to remind ourselves about who he is and all that he has done, to set our eyes on the king who has come and who is also coming again. You see, the bread and the juice, they're in the back. There's a table on the left and on the right. And during our time of worship, go back, take communion, dip the bread in the juice. Do it as a reminder of all that Jesus has done for you so that you might be made ready for his return. And as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if he is your savior and your leader, then go back, take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to him. But this morning, if what you are realizing is that you are not ready for his return, that you have not indeed surrendered to him as Savior and Lord, I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion until you do. Talk with God. Be honest about him. See, if that's not the where you are at this morning, then communion is not right for you. But Jesus is, and this community is, and this church is, and these people are, and you are welcome here. This church was begun so that you might come know him and find him and love him and live for him. But wait until you are worshiping with communion, not just doing a ritual. Talk with God. Come talk with me. As we take communion, as we sing, I just want to encourage you, talk with God. Are you ready for his return? How does the imminence of his return need to continue to shape your life today and every day as you wait for him? Ask him to remind you of the good news of his imminent return, which is the thing that fuels your eager anticipation, your vigilant watchfulness for his coming. Hebrews, I think 9 or 10, says that Jesus is coming one day to save those who are eagerly waiting for his return. Let that be us. Let that be you. Ask God to cause your heart and your life to be characterized by an eager anticipation, keeping watch for his return. Let's pray. King Jesus, God, we are so grateful that you are the king of all. God, that you have come once so that you might save us in humility, but that you are coming again indeed to rule and to reign. God, I am so grateful that you are coming again. God, my heart longs for that day. God, but this week as I studied and as I prepped, what I realized is that I don't live for that day all the time. God, I live for today. I live for tomorrow. I live for me instead of you. King Jesus, I don't want to turn from those things. I want to be characterized by living every day for your great kingly glory. For your purposes, for your name, for your renown, not my own. Jesus, help us to set our eyes on you. Help us to keep watch for your kingly return. Oh, how we need you every day until you come back. We love you, Jesus. Not out of fear, not out of duty, not out of obligation, out of joy. Because you have loved us first. Amen.